0: One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together
1: global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising.
0: Welcome to The Real Story with me, Paul Henley. Now this week we are investigating the cracks in Britain's political system. So, we've come to the Palace of Westminster, home to the two Houses of Parliament that make up our legislative branch, the Commons and the Lords. We're just down the road from 10 Downing Street, the home and office of Prime Minister Theresa May, and we're across the square from the Supreme Court, the two other branches of government. And our question this week is, has the political melodrama that has simultaneously gripped and appalled observers at home and abroad since the Brexit referendum of June 2016 revealed a deeply uncomfortable truth. Are the mother of all parliaments and our famously unwritten constitution fundamentally unfit for the challenges facing the UK today? Well, I've been asking a few people who happen to be here outside Parliament. Do you think that's what Brexit means, that the system's b- it's broken?
1: It's badly damaged, certainly. Um, I think some MTs have amazing in- integrity. People like Amasubri, for example, they're putting the country before the party and uh, they're doing what they think is right for us. The way things are going, we're just some uh, laughingstock of the world. It- it's embarrassing. I-, I find it embarrassing to say I'm British.
0: Do you think that Brexit, the whole thing, proves that the system's broken or or not? What do you think?
2: Well, yeah, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, John Bercow's got a lot to uh, answer for.
0: He's the Speaker of Parliament.
2: Yeah, he's supposed to be the referee, and yet he's introducing new ideas that favour the Remainers. So he's he's acting like a double agent, and so is Mrs May.
0: Do you have much faith in MPs? Uh,
2: None at all. Not after this scenario. It's it's out out of order. We need to rethink... uh, a way by which the majority are catered for.
0: So those were some views from some of the more politically-minded people who made the effort to come to Westminster here on a weekday morning, but the frustration with politics cuts right across British society. Ruth Fox is director of the Hansard Society, which is a non-partisan research organisation that compiles a yearly audit of political engagement. And she joins me. Hello, Ruth. What are your headline findings this year? Because they're pretty shocking to some people, aren't they?
3: Satisfaction with the system of governing is what stands out, which is at a 15-year low. We've been doing the audit of political engagement now. It's 16th report published this week. People are willing, because of the dissatisfaction, willing to entertain fairly radical solutions. And the, the sense of dissatisfaction with the position that the country's in, a sense of pessimism, is quite strong.
0: Does that cut across all ages, all social classes?
3: What's interesting on Satisfaction with System of Government is it does. I mean, many of our indicators of political engagement, like interest and knowledge, certainty to vote, you can see demographic disparities around age, gender, social class. On Satisfaction with System of Governing, it cuts right across all groups. There's very, very few significant differences. And what's interesting also, this is not a Brexit issue particularly. Brexit has shone a bright light on the System of Governing, but people were dissatisfied before. And so 46% of those who say they vote... Voted Remain in the uh, the EU referendum, for example, agree with the statement that they'd like a strong leader willing to break the rules.
0: What does that mean? Somebody who's just against what we've got now?
3: It's an expression of deep, broad dissatisfaction with the state, the system of governing, with politicians and with parties, with the whole system. People express much more confidence in groups like the military and the judges to act in the public interest. Only a third of the population have that confidence in our political class. I don't genuinely do not think that we are on the slippery road to authoritarianism. I don't think we should get these out. Are you worried? I'm a little bit worried, but satisfaction with the system of governing, the state of parties, politicians, this has been deep and high levels of dissatisfaction for many years.
0: That was Ruth Fox of the Hansard Society speaking to me earlier on outside Parliament. I'm now back in the studio in New Broadcasting House, and I'm joined to discuss the state of the UK's political system by three guests. Robert Hazel, Professor of Government and Constitution at UCL and the founder of the Constitution Unit... Dr Lisa McKenzie is a lecturer in sociological practice at Middlesex University in London and an expert on working-class political culture. Katrin Prebill works as UK correspondent for German and Austrian newspapers. She is German. And we're also joined down the line from Canterbury in Kent by Sir Stephen Laws QC, former First Parliamentary counsel responsible for drafting UK legislation, now Senior Research Fellow at the Policy Exchange Think Tank In the UK, welcome all to the program. We just heard a sample of an engaged public who think the system is broken. In a few words, do you agree? Is it broken, Lisa?
4: Absolutely, and I think it was broken before Brexit, and I think Brexit has just exposed its failure.
0: Stephen,
2: no, I don't think it's broken. I think the level of dissatisfaction is the thing to be worried about, but I think it's exposed some weaknesses. It's weakened some of the guy ropes holding it up, but it's also exposed some of its strengths and revealed them. And it's the politics that's difficult rather than the, the system. Catherine,
1: I don't think it's broken. I think it's rather under massive strain. I agree in that it exposes weaknesses, but I think it's a, like the whole crisis right now is just actually a chance or it should be seen as a chance basically to reform the system. Robert, what's your take on this?
5: Well, it's undoubtedly a crisis. But I think it's mostly a political crisis rather than a constitutional crisis. The political system is creaking badly, but the constitution isn't necessarily broken. And it's certainly not a constitutional crisis because we lack a written constitution. Any country seeking to leave the EU would face huge political and constitutional challenges. Thank you all. Let's start the debate with this fundamental question
0: of whether the mistake was to have the referendum in 2016
5: in the first place. Do you regret, Robert, that it took place? I regret it in one important respect, that it was a referendum where one answer led to a complete leap in the dock, and that is what has since happened. Never again should we hold a referendum without both the options being carefully thought and worked through so that people would know the consequences of either
0: option. Catherine, you were already living in this country, weren't you, when when the vote took place? Were you surprised that it happened? Do you think it should have happened?
1: I think it was a massive mistake just because it's such a complex issue. And even people who work every single day in Brussels or here, um, the EU, even for them, it's very complicated and hard to understand everything. So I don't think it was right. I don't want to sound patronising, but I just think it's so complex that it's too much to ask for in a referendum. Too much for the simple voting
0: public, Lisa. You didn't vote, did you?
4: No, I didn't vote, no. No, I would uh, never give my little bit of power to people that I don't trust. Why not? <laughs> Why? Because I, I I see my vote as this small bit of power that I have in our democratic system. And I don't think I, I don't think any of the people that sit in the House of Westminster, deserve my power.
0: So you thought the system was broken before the vote even happened?
4: Absolutely. And I think that comes from whereabouts I come from in the country. I'm a working-class woman coming from the East Midlands. So I think I've got a different lens on it but can I just say was this a mistake I would say that no it wasn't a mistake because a mistake infers that people perhaps didn't know what they were doing I think the people that that decided on this referendum they knew what they were doing they were just so arrogant they didn't understand what the consequences were.
0: So Stephen Laws all the divisions that Brexit has highlighted were surely there before the vote weren't they? Yes they were and I think that explains why the vote took place but one
2: can regret its effect on the system because it was always going to be the case that if the vote went the way it eventually did things were going to be extremely difficult and they were going to be extremely difficult because the fundamental rule of the British constitution is government shouldn't try and do something that there is not a majority that will support it in either or both houses of parliament and Uh, Voting to leave meant that the government was put in the position of having to implement a policy that um, a majority in both houses was, in its heart,
0: opposed to. The thing is, Robert Hazel, people, especially Parliament and the government, were not prepared for the yes to Brexit vote, were they?
5: I think that's right. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, who eventually caved in to Conservative Party pressure to hold the referendum, anticipated that people would vote to remain. And he and other members of the government were all surprised and shocked when narrowly the vote was to leave. Lisa, a lot of people did jump on this
0: vote as the chance to have their voice. You said you, yeah. you didn't even want to give credence to the process because you didn't trust the system no. in the first place. No. But a lot of people thought, yes, this is my chance to have a real protest.
4: Yeah, I think there, is, there was a part of the Brexit vote that was saying to, to, I suppose, the rest of the country, we are here and it's time that you noticed us, you recognised us. So, Stephen
0: Laws, the, the thing is about the vote, the overriding thing is that it was unusual in British politics. It was direct democracy. Was that the problem? I don't think it's a problem.
2: I think the problem is what you do with it when you've got it. The reason I think it went the way it did was because the message that we had lost control and we wanted to regain control resonated with a large number of people who felt in relation to the system that
0: they had lost control. Now we've had one of these exercises in direct
5: democracy, Robert Hazel. Are we going to have lots more? Yes, there's a trend worldwide for increasing use of referendums, so the UK is not alone. We might think twice about another vote along these lines, surely. Well... I think it's quite possible that there will be referendums in future. There might be a second referendum on Scottish independence. Who knows? There might even be a referendum in Northern Ireland on whether they might wish to reunify with Southern Ireland. So referendums are certainly not off the agenda. What we do need to do is think through much more carefully the place of referendums in our political system and to organise them and plan for them in a way that allows much more deliberation before the referendum takes place.
0: I remember shortly after the vote doing a reporting tour of Europe to see what people thought of the vote, and actually the only broad agreement with at least the principle of having a vote was in Catalonia, where, of course, they're desperate for a vote on independence there. What do you think is the only non-Brit around the table, Catherine, of the whole concept of the referendum?
1: I just think, like, the EU referendum invited so many people to basically claim whatever they wanted to, that the knowledge about the EU was very little. That was the case for politicians, but even for the media. So everyone invited, basically, everyone just to say whatever they liked. But it's direct democracy. It's giving people a voice. Yes, but I think it has to be very clear what both sides stand for. No one knew what a Brexit would look like. And at the same time... I mean, even the Remainer side or the the pro-Europeans were, of course, completely exaggerating with everything. I mean, from the outside, from Europe, everyone just watched and saw this mess basically coming up, you know, and couldn't really believe what's going on.
0: Let's talk about the British system, particularly Robert Hazel, because if, in the wake of this referendum result, we'd had a big majority government that would easily have pushed its will through Parliament, things would have been so different. Was a key cause here
5: the fact there was a minority government without the clout to push it through? Absolutely, and because of our electoral system, we're used to single party majority government. It's fairly unusual to have a minority government, but. At In this case, it's exacerbated much, much further because the governing party, the Conservative Party, is deeply split. So we have a minority government with no party discipline behind that government.
0: What do you make of our minority government, Katrine? Is it intriguing to you?
5: Oh, very much
1: so. And it's even more intriguing to see that in this country, there's just no system of finding consensus. Like no one is prepared to make compromises. And of course, for me as a chairman, where it's it's very usual to do um, or very common to have coalitions, that's the whole system, it's slightly strange to watch what's going on in parliament right now, where literally no one is prepared to make any compromise. And of course, when you see the system here, it's not made for it. It's basically, and the winner takes it all and the loser loses, which doesn't work for Brexit anymore.
0: Minority governments can be good news in many ways, can't they, Lisa? It stops extremism being pushed through as law sometimes, surely.
4: Um, I think the reason we've got a minority government is, again, it's the consequences of representation and who is being represented. And
0: Would you vote in a general election, by the way?
4: No, no, so I wouldn't. You object no. to the
0: system to that extent?
4: Yes, I'm an anarchist. Um, I believe in people representing themselves in local communities. If there
0: were proportional representation, would you vote in under that system?
4: I, do you know what? I think if there was proportional representation, I would I would think about it. But obviously, for me, the problem is about representation and party politics. So if the only choice you have got is to vote for this particularly whipped person in this party or this particularly whipped person in this party, well, that's not a choice for me. Well,
0: Just out of interest, how does the anarchist version of Brexit work?
4: I suppose the anarchist version of Brexit wouldn't even exist, would it? Because one of the key causes for for Brexit in the first place was deep inequality in the country. And, you know, under uh, an anarchist syndicalist system, we wouldn't have those deep inequalities. I'm a utopianist, but, you know, I think somebody's got to be. All
0: right, we really are branching out here. Robert,
5: proportional representation back to that. Would that have helped? I think it would, because, as Catherine was saying it would reduce very adversarial, majoritarian political culture. It's not generally known. We have nine political parties in the House of Commons, but we only talk on the whole about the two major parties because they're so dominant, and they're given that dominant position by the -the first-past-the-post voting system. If we had more proportional voting system, then we would have a very fragmented party system, as they have in almost all continental European
0: countries. And as we... Might actually have in if we end up voting in the forthcoming European elections, which do have a system of PR. Catherine,
1: yes, and I think it's a good thing because it represents way more the diverse views of a nation or of a country. And I think here now, right now, like you can see that basically the political parties are broken or the system of the political parties. Because if you look at, like, it's not only the conservatives, it's even Labour, how fragmented everything is and everyone is. And there's, like, the moderates, the hardliners. It's almost coalitions within the party.
0: Do you wish we had lots more parties represented, Stephen Laws in Parliament? Would that have eased things? I don't think it would have eased things, but
2: I want to challenge this idea that we are used to confrontation and that we don't do compromise I think we do do compromise. I think the way Parliament works most of the time, government is constantly trying to get as many people on board as possible and it succeeds in doing it, which gives everybody else the impression that Parliament is just a cipher or a rubber stamp. Well, it's certainly not We're, managing now. Well, it's not managing now and I I think that there are two other factors that have contributed to that rather than the number of parties or a failure to compromise. I think what's been stopping compromise are... First of all, the deadline in the Article 50 procedure, which has caused people to think that you can gain an advantage from time. And secondly, the fact that we have been offered a solution that people can say is permanent. I think the way you get people to compromise to accept things that they don't really want to accept is by persuading them that they don't have to accept them forever. We've spent three, nearly four months arguing about the backstop as something from which there is no exit. I think we could have come to a solution much more quickly if we could have said to people, well, accept it for now, and if it turns out to be as bad as you think it's going to be, there is always the opportunity, difficult though it may be, to go back on it.
0: But when I say that we've got an adversarial system, Robert Hazel, I'm not exaggerating. Should there be rules against people just shouting at each other and exchanging abuse in Parliament? That can't
5: help i have the greatest sympathy for the mps in all the recent debates they are really agonized in the conflict between their conscience their party their constituency pressures they're doing and their best. what they think are in the interests of the nation and they really really are doing their best and nobody should rubbish them for that you're you're shaking your head, Lisa.
4: Yeah, I, I don't think I could sort of disagree with that more, actually. At the what do you think is
0: motivating them? These are people, you know, wrestling with their consciences. I'm, I'm That's, sure. That much is obvious. I'm sure
4: it? they are wrestling with their consciences. But um, So I, I go back to, I suppose, the, the first segment when we were listening to voices from outside Parliament and there was someone that said something about Anna Soubry. Um, she's a
0: Conservative MP who's well, joined the new independent yeah, group or yeah, so helped she, form it.
4: She's also an MP in in Nottinghamshire, and I'm not sure she's putting her constituency perhaps before her politics.
0: This is the thing if, if your constituency was more or less 50 50, how do yes. you represent it? Yeah,
4: yeah. It? I'm not even sure if it's about Remain or Brexit, it's about the consequences and the conditions that have arisen where we're at this point. And I think that when we've got sort of representation like Anna Soubry, who is not perhaps representing the people in her her constituency, the East Midlands, I think we've got a problem. And that's why I think fundamentally this is about representation.
0: But they're not delegates MPs, Robert Hazel, are
5: they? They are representatives of voters. Indeed. And that is why they are grappling so hard with their consciences and with what they think is in the interest of the nation. And that is why we've seen such huge rebellions in both the major parties. And that's made the whole Brexit process really unpredictable because we no longer have disciplined party blocks.
0: Let's talk for a moment about how this is seen from afar and for a moment specifically from Germany. Katrine, before I come to you on this, a little taste of what some people in your home country have had as regards a view on the whole Brexit fiasco. Immerhin will das Unterhaus einen No Deal Brexit verhindern, sagen sie. Gleichzeitig fordern die Abgeordneten aber neue Verhandlungen, wozu die EU gefühlte zehntausendmal Mal nein gesagt hat. Liebe Engländer, erklärt man das, diese beiden Beschlüsse schließen sich aus. Just explain what was going on in that clip from German tele ZDF Catherine. In Germany there's this sort of, you know, they are
1: very astonished, I would call, I would say, um, how the Brits have the debate here. You know, that basically they always ask for things which are already off the table. And basically, that's what what he was saying, that Parliament wants to avoid a no deal. That was the vote in Parliament. But at the same time, they don't want the deal and want to reopen the deal. And it's just a bit strange, I guess. Or like, you know, the, the Brits were always seen um, as very pragmatic and they, they were long they? for their common sense. And all of a sudden, I think in Europe, everyone is like, what is going on is Europe the enjoying this? Is it enjoying the strangeness? Of no no, not at all. And, and people are actually deeply sad and they really regret the decision of the British people to leave the European Union. But now, over the past months, there was a bit of a change. There is this big Brexit fatigue, believe me or not. It's even on the continent. It's not only in the UK. So people are like kind of, okay, you wanted to leave. So please get your stuff together, basically, and leave.
0: Are you bothered, Lisa, by how non Brits see us? This is the BBC World Service.
4: Am I bothered? Uh, No, not really. I mean, look, I'm here, I do a lot of research and I am a working class activist. So I'm more interested in how we understand class and inequality. And I think that one of the things that people overseas are understanding is that Britain is a deeply divided country. And I think perhaps where these fractures were not obvious, perhaps Brexit has exposed these. And I don't think, think that's such a bad thing, actually.
0: And Robert Hazel, do you think we've got anything
5: to learn from the view on Brexit from abroad? I think in terms of running our political system, we've got a lot to learn, particularly from those European countries which have frequent experience of minority government. We did a report about 10 years ago called Making Minority Government Work. And rule one of minority government is don't govern in a majoritarian way. And I'm afraid Theresa May has governed in a very majoritarian way.
0: And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, looking at whether Brexit has revealed the British political system to be broken. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there, first-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live in. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into in the future. You can email us at our new email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk or tweet at BBC The Real Story. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Paul Henley, asking if Brexit proves British politics are broken. And my guests... Katrine Prebil, who works as UK correspondent for German and Austrian newspapers. She comes from Germany. Dr Lisa McKenzie is here, a lecturer in sociological practice at Middlesex University in London and an expert on working class political culture. Robert Hazel is here, Professor of Government and the Constitution at University College London and the founder of the Constitution Unit. And we're also joined down the line from Canterbury in Kent by Sir Stephen Laws QC, who was first parliamentary counsel. He's now a senior research fellow at the policy exchange think tank in the UK. Earlier in the programme we discussed the 2016 referendum that set the whole saga in motion and why a failure to understand how minority governments work might have stymied Prime Minister May's promise to implement the result. Coming up we want to discuss some of the unusual political behaviour that Brexit has thrown up and ask if some of it has crossed an important line and then we'll talk briefly about what the answers might be to the mess the UK is apparently in. As we've heard, not everybody blames the system. Prime Minister May comes in for a lot of personal criticism. So does this man. That was the UK Speaker John Burko, whose fame now extends around the world for that phrase, order, alone. But he's also become notorious in certain circles. Here he is again defending MPs after several of them were called traitors the day after Theresa May herself accused Parliament of frustrating the will of the people over Brexit.
2: None of you is a traitor. All of you are doing your best. This should not be, and I'm sure will not prove, to be a matter of any controversy whatsoever. From the Chair, let me say that I believe passionately in the institution of Parliament, in the rights of members of this House, and in their commitment to their
0: duty. Sir so Stephen Laws, you are unhappy with how the Speaker has behaved in this whole saga. Can you explain why? One needs to think about what would be
2: a good role for the Speaker to be playing at this moment. Robert Hazel's an expert on this, but in Scandinavian countries where there is a hung Parliament, it's often the Speaker whose job it is to call the parties together and to chair the talks that will lead to coalition and compromise. It's impossible to imagine the present Speaker performing that role because he has made decisions that have rightly or wrongly exposed him to the charge that he is favouring one side over the other side. Has he broken the rules? Well, I think in a number of respects he has. There was the debate about forthwith and about whether a motion that is to be put forthwith cannot be amended now, it was put as a matter of precedent. It's actually a question of the meaning of words. Words should be given the meaning that people intend for them. There was also the same question issue, whether or not you should decide the same thing again, whether you should reopen issues. Now, there is a rule in the House of Commons you shouldn't reopen issues, and it's a good rule because finality in decision-making
0: is a good thing. That was the whole argument about whether Theresa May's deal should come back again and again for approval by MPs. That's wasn't right.
2: It? And he said that it shouldn't. And then when the government proposed to put down a motion to say, notwithstanding the rule that you shouldn't ask questions more than once, this one could be asked more than once, he said he wouldn't even entertain that. Uh, Now, that's one side of it. The other side of it is that almost everything that has happened since December has involved his allowing the other side of the debate to reopen issues that were resolved during the passage of the EU withdrawal bill and which they lost. And the so-called grieve amendments were all reopening issues that had already been decided. And when the indicative votes came along, he allowed the same question to be put twice there and even allowed a motion to put it more than once, notwithstanding that you shouldn't
0: put a question more than once. So he hasn't been consistent. I want to ask you, Robert Hazley, if you think he's been doing a good job.
5: I think he's done his level best to be a neutral chair in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. You heard the criticism of him by a Brexit supporter outside Parliament earlier. I think he's to blame. Indeed, but I think in particular the suggestion that the Speaker is in some way biased because he's a Remain supporter is very, very unfair. The Speaker's task is to apply the standing orders and also to allow all sections within Parliament, all different viewpoints from major parties, minor parties, smaller groupings, to be heard. And often he becomes unpopular, particularly on the government side, when he allows unwelcome views to be expressed. Lisa, how do you think members of the public relate
0: to the Speaker and even to a debate which is sounding a bit arcane about his rules and
4: duties? I think Westminster itself is arcane. I think the general public now are watching Westminster and they're looking at the pomp and the ceremony and the language. And I think history will look very unfavourable on this group of people, actually, because the rest of the country... Whether you are remain or whether you want to leave or whereabouts you are in that spectrum, realises that we're in very serious times and this is going to have serious consequences for many generations.
0: Even when Parliament is really keenly arguing something and tempers are up, MPs sometimes look a bit like they're enjoying themselves, don't they?
4: Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the way that the general public are watching. Westminster now. It it is a spectacle. It's a spectator sport. And that's not good, especially the Speaker. He takes away from the seriousness of what is happening. Um, The whole
0: debate has brought out of the woodwork some backbench MPs from all parties that we might not have heard of otherwise. We're hearing more of Parliament. That's got to be healthy.
4: No, no, no. I mean, it's healthy. I mean, one of the things, one of the positives that's come out of this referendum is that people are talking constantly about politics. They're getting involved and they want to know what's happening. And also now they want to say, I've got to say, on the whole, I think the referendum has been positive for British political society.
0: Katrine. what we might not have learned a whole lot new about is European politics, for instance, how the EU
1: works. Could we have
0: benefited from a bit more of that?
1: Most certainly. And it's even baffling sometimes to follow the debates now because even now it's very often just completely ignored what the EU is saying or what other member states are saying, as if it's just basically not on the table at all. I guess now for the first time, actually, British people learn more about Europe, uh, learn more about the European Union. I would even argue that the knowledge in this country is these days higher than in other countries. You know, I mean, who knows about the customs union in Germany or in Spain or in France? And here, it's basically every single day on the news.
0: Interesting. Well, the row over John Burko is, of course, closely linked to Parliament's attempts to wrest control of the stalled Brexit process away from the government. Here, is the backbench Conservative MP Oliver Letwin, explaining why he proposed a joint motion with the Labour backbencher Yvette Cooper to allow a series of so-called indicative votes so that MPs could formulate Brexit options and express their preferences. The process of which we are now at the start is a process that will require the fundamental realignment of the relationship between civil service, government and Parliament. There is no way we can continue to act as if we were merely uh, a body to which the government is accountable, we will have, in effect, for this purpose, for a period, to take on the government of our country. Stephen Laws, Parliament is sovereign, isn't it? What's wrong with that?
2: Yes, it is, and nothing that has been done, the Speaker apart, has been contrary to the rules. Nevertheless, I think there was a strength in our system and that these proposals, the idea that parliament can somehow take over the functions of government are extremely undesirable because government on the whole needs to be coordinated it needs to be run as a whole system not decision by decision and parliament inevitably will make decision by decision that may be inconsistent and may not hold government together we have a system under which the government is chosen by the house of commons and it can at any time dismiss the government if there is a majority for doing so But once it has delegated governmental functions to government, I think it should allow government to have the initiative with policy-making and budget-making and all sorts of decision-making and should confine itself to scrutinising what the government proposes, calling it to account for what it has done, and if it cannot reach agreement with what the government is doing, dismissing it by withdrawing its confidence... And I think that needs to be an all or nothing thing. I don't think you can have a system where Parliament makes some decisions, where it runs an agenda that competes with the government's agenda, because I think that way you end up with a chaotic situation. Robert Hazel, I, I regret the proposal that has been made because of where it's leading, potentially.
0: Robert Hazel, you've consistently defended MPs in this process.
5: The fact is, even when they tried to take control, they couldn't agree on anything, though. That's right, and I agree with Stephen about the fundamentals, and I think it's really difficult for parliamentarians, in particular backbench parliamentarians, to try to control the agenda because they're not a cohesive, organised group in a way that the government normally is. But let's not overstate it in terms of the anxieties that have been expressed, because looking at it in comparative terms, the degree of government control over the parliamentary agenda at Westminster is pretty extreme. In other parliaments, it's quite common for there to be something called the Parliamentary Business Committee or whatever it may be, which agrees the agenda. And in some cases, the agenda is then put to the chamber itself on a weekly basis for approval. That happens, for example, in the Scottish Parliament. So, There's nothing unusual about Parliament having a bit more control over its own agenda. And when you watch individual MPs,
2: please do. I agree with what Robert's saying there. I, I don't think there is an objection to Parliament having more control over how it exercises its functions of scrutiny and calling the government to account. And there is a difficult line to discern between scrutiny and calling to account and taking over the agenda and trying to manage government. But I think that line does exist and should not
0: be crossed. And when you look at MPs in this process, Robert, wrestling with what to do and clearly torn both ways on this, wanting to implement the will of the people, wanting to do what is best for the country, do you look at a group of honourable people trying to do the best job they can?
5: Yes, completely honourable people. And one of them, for example, is Dominic Grieve, who is a former attorney general. He is, if you like, the living embodiment of the rule of law. He is conservative with a capital C and also a small c. He will have wrestled tremendously with his conscience before, in effect, bending the rules in some of the ways that have been done. But desperate times call occasionally for desperate measures.
0: How do German voters prefer to have their members of Parliament, Katrine? Um, You like a bit of consensus, don't you? You are used to minority governments and to people agreeing, even after a long argument.
1: Yes, and sometimes it takes quite a long time, like last time after the last elections, to actually find a coalition and to find consensus. But I think it's quite healthy because the debate is then very public and you kind of find a way through. And I think that is fairly reflecting the views of the people then.
0: Can you put your anarchist principles aside for just (laughs) one moment, Lisa, and say what kind of an MP you would like representing you?
4: I keep coming back to this point, representation. So while we're having all this coalition and compromise, we're having this coalition and compromise with people that actually only represent a very small amount of the general public. Who would I like to represent me? I would like a working-class woman from a local community. To represent me, because there are working
0: class women in Parliament.
4: There are, but how many is Parliament representative as the general population? It, it really isn't.
0: So, do you want people put up as candidates by quota?
4: I think. I mean, I think what Brexit has done is it's opened an opportunity. And what I would say to anyone is, if you live in a community, if you living in an area where you don't agree with any of your MPs, stand yourself as an independent and challenge both of them. I think the party political system is particularly what is showing itself up as broken.
0: Well, we seem to have moved smoothly onto the last part of this discussion because we've spent the best part of the programme discussing the disease. What about a cure? What is the answer for the situation we find ourselves in? We've already discussed proportional representation. Catherine, do you think that is more likely to be
1: introduced in Britain following this mess? I don't think it's going to happen, actually. And I don't think there's an easy solution right now. I mean, it feels like the country has to first calm down and some sort of reconcile again. and then How do you suggest we do that?
0: How do you suggest we calm down?
1: I mean, I don't like the idea of Brexit, but I do see the problems if it doesn't happen. I mean, the problems lie so much deeper. So from the outside perspective, I would say more devolution would help. You know, I mean, there's a reason why in Northern England people voted for leave, Um, people didn't feel represented. And I kind of think if there was more devolution and not only a Scottish, Northern Irish and a Welsh regional parliament, but also an, an English one, I think that would help massively.
0: We just kicked the ball down the road, Robert Hazel, at least until the 31st of October, or rather the other EU heads of state have kicked the ball for us. What should we use that six and a bit months for? How
5: should we calm down? How should we regroup? I hope through some much deeper deliberation about what form of Brexit we want. And if you're asking us for possible solutions, let me put in a shout for more deliberative democracy alongside direct democracy. Look at recent referendums in Ireland on two really divisive issues. One was same-sex marriage, and the other was reform of the law on abortion. And those issues were regarded as untouchable by politicians in Ireland, but thanks to initially having them discussed in citizens' assemblies of randomly selected citizens, compromise proposals emerged. There was quite a wide public debate before the referendum was then held, and Ireland, therefore, was able to approach these deeply divisive issues in a very well-informed and mature way. Lisa McKenzie, how how do you think we should use this six and a bit months?
4: I actually agree with this idea of having open public debate. And I think one of the the things that we haven't debated enough is the reasons why people voted Leave in the first place. Why did people want change in such a an extraordinary way? Why did they demand that there is change?
0: Have we not looked at them? It it seems to me we've done an awful lot of looking at those reasons. What we can't do is tell them you were wrong to vote about Europe because you were angry. No,
4: we can't do that. But also what we've done is we've kind of paid lip service to that. But what have we actually done? Because where I come from, there is still no buses. People still can't get to work.
0: What's that got to do with Brussels?
4: Well, people were asked, they read that that question as, do you want things to stay the same or do you want things change. Now one of the big issues around the East Midlands and, and the North of England that voted leave in the areas that voted leave is that there is no public transport but I tell you what there is. There are big signs which tells them how much the EU has helped them build A roads which takes lorries to and from the M1 that have no pavements and boat, no bus routes.
0: Do we need a written constitution to prevent this sort of mess happening again? Robert you are the founder of the constitution unit. Is that a key problem here, that it's a famously unwritten constitution, that it just doesn't spell out solutions?
5: I don't think having a written constitution would make any difference. I said right at the beginning that any country seeking to leave the EU would find itself in real political and constitutional difficulties. Let's look enviously at some of the Scandinavian countries, some of the most advanced countries, in the world in terms of the quality of their democracy. I'm going to read out brief extracts from the Constitution of One, Denmark. It says, The legislative power shall be vested in the King and the Parliament. The executive power shall be vested in the King. Two, the King shall have the supreme authority in all the affairs of the realm. Three, the King shall appoint and dismiss the Prime Minister and the other ministers. So, how what much, does that How much do Danes hear from their King? Indeed. So... All these countries with written constitutions, just like Britain, rely very heavily on constitutional conventions to interpret the constitution and to make it work as a modern political system. And we too have similar constitutional conventions and we need to apply them more effectively in the working of our political system.
0: Catherine, can you think... Are there written laws in Germany that we're lacking that we could turn to to try and get us out of this hole?
1: Gosh, I would hope that we would never get into this situation. Actually, I just think like sometimes it feels so antiquated the system here. You know, it's almost a bit funny if someone comes up all of a sudden with some sort of case or precedence from the 17th century or from Henry VIII. It's not a very modern way to have your rules and your uh, your ways um that's Let, crisis please, like i can that. hear
0: you sighing sir stephen Laws. No, i, I <laughs> want to bring you in uh, it, really to defend the constitution as is
2: well i don't think we need a written constitution and i don't think one is possible i think it's unattainable i imagine myself trying to draft a new system and if you're trying to draft a new better system how do you decide whether or not it's a better system well the only way you decide whether a system a decision making system is better is whether it produces better decisions. And in order to draft a constitution, you have to be able to decide what better decisions would be. And there will be no consensus on that. Do we have a constitution that would have made Brexit easier or one that would have made stopping it easier? No one's going to agree on that. And that, I think, makes a written constitution
0: Unwritable. Well, we have but... had our version of the constitution, Robert Hazel, for a long time. It's it survived centuries, most of it. Many other countries have redrawn and redrawn theirs to fit circumstances following wars. We basically stuck with us.
5: Uh, unless I'm mistaken, we've never had a crisis this big with it. I agree that the present crisis is huge. But you're absolutely right. Our constitution is centuries old. It's easy to mock sometimes for its archaic features. The reason why... Catherine's giving you a grudging nod. (laughs) The reason why occasionally those precedents are referred to is the standing orders of Parliament have developed ever since the 13th and 14th century when the Parliament first started sitting at Westminster. And so the Speaker was merely in effect saying, this rule of Parliament is a very old rule. It's existed for a long time. It's important. The control mechanism
2: in our constitution is essentially political. Precedents are relevant, not the same way that they're relevant in the law as making rules, but they're relevant because it's politically easier to do something that's been done before than it is to do something that hasn't been done before. And because our system operates with a political control, it's more authentic. If you have a written constitution, you decide political issues by having arguments about words written before the problems arose. If you have our sort of constitution, you authentically have to solve the political problem according to its merits. Now, that's difficult, and we're seeing that at the moment, but in many ways it is preferable. Lisa.
4: I think we're falling into the same old British trap here. We're thinking that everything revolves in this sort of one square mile of Westminster. And we think that this is something that we can write our way out of or we can have a motion to debate our way out of. We're not thinking about the context and the wider issues here. And it's quite interesting that, you know, the rest of Europe might think we're having a nervous breakdown. But actually, the whole of Europe have got their own issues around this sort of context of... Inequality of globalization, of people at the top getting wealthier and wealthier, and people at the bottom getting poorer and poorer. And the whole of Europe, in some way or another, are having fallouts from this. I was in um, Paris a few weeks ago supporting the Gilets Jaunes. There are posters everywhere about Frexit. So let's not pretend that this is just about the British constitution.
0: But do you have any faith that the whole Brexit nightmare, as lots of people have, have called it, will actually change any of that? Is it going to shake politics to such a fundamental extent that things will change in the way that you want?
4: Well, that's up to us, isn't it? We can leave a massive gap, leave a massive political space for far-right elements, populist elements to move into, or we can do something better. Katrine? I'm finding this
1: very striking because of Brexit basically consumes all energy, all time, everything in this country. Nothing is being dealt with anymore. I see all those huge issues in the UK when it comes to homelessness or education or the NHS.
0: Not being addressed. Yes,
1: not being addressed at all. So I think it's getting even worse.
0: It would be a welcome thing in British politics, wouldn't it, Robert, if we discussed other things occasionally?
5: Certainly. And we may in time move on to that, including possibly important constitutional issues. We've mentioned Devolution and the over centralised nature of the British state. And I hope one thing that will be addressed post Brexit is a more balanced relationship between the central government here in London and the four nations of the UK.
0: Thank you all. I'm going to try and close the programme by asking another deceptively simple question, which is when we eventually come out of the other side of Brexit on whatever side, with whatever outcome, do you think that the way the UK does politics? will ever be the same again. How fundamental has this process been? And I'll I'll go to Lisa first.
4: I think this is a fundamental rupture in our politics. It's like Pandora's box. It's been opened. I'm not sure that we can put it back together again in the same way. I think that, that politics is going to be extremely different in the future.
2: Sir Stephen Laws. I think it will be different. I think there will be different starting places from for arguments in the future but essentially because our system is based on uh, political factors uh, it's the politics that will determine what happens in future and so it's the political issues that arise in future that will determine where we go rather than where we've been one of the problems we've got at the moment is that so much of the argument is about what we should or could or would have done in 2016 rather than where we go from here so where we go from here should be the question,
0: and it should be the question in the future too. Katrine Pribil, will things ever be the same again?
1: I think it's going to be um, very different, and I would hope that it's being seen as a chance in some ways to actually reflect on some things which don't go well and to actually change things.
5: Robert? I don't think things will be the same again. There's been a very big shake-up of the party system. Party discipline has severely broken down. I'm not sure it can be restored. There's even deeper distrust of politicians and the political system. And it's set the four nations of the UK against each other in ways which may possibly threaten to tear apart the union.
0: Thank you all to Robert Hazel, to Lisa McKenzie, to Catherine Prebill and to Stephen Laws. That's the real story for this week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.